You're entering Outer Brightness. Fireflies, welcome back to Outer Brightness Podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about uh, the LDS testimony. Uh, but before we jump into that, uh, Matthew and I are just going to catch up a little bit. It's been a little while since we recorded, eh, Matthew? Yeah, it's been a few weeks, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a little bit. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How's school treating you? Uh, it's all right. I'm trying to survive at least the next four weeks. All right. Good deal. Good How about deals. you? How's work? It's, uh, it's good. We're pretty busy. Um, I mean, we're slower than normal, but uh, this is the time of year that a lot of our large clients go out to bid. So it's keeping, keeping us quite busy. Oh, nice. So you um, mean like uh, you're trying to find, you're trying to do new contracts or whatever you would call it or what? Yeah. Yeah. Mostly for existing uh, large clients, they tend. Uh, so we finished up all of our bids for, well, mostly for one one twenty two. Anything that's left is is maybe like a mid year effective date. But a lot of the a lot of our larger clients like to go out early, so they're they're out now for one one twenty twenty three. So it just keeps us a little busy. This week we're going to be talking about the LDS testimony. This was a a topic that one of our listeners, Nolan Sackett, requested that we we talk about a while back. Um, and we're going to be touching on you know the two. Uh, kind of scriptural uh, LDS can- canonical uh, passages that he called out. Um, so it's a topic that that those who have never been Latter-day Saints um, struggle a lot with as they, as they interact with Latter-day Saints and Latter-day Saints uh, bear their testimonies to them. Um, and, you know, Matthew, I'm sure you, you have, and I know I have fielded questions from never Mormons who don't understand what Latter-day Saints are doing and what they mean when they're bearing their testimonies. So we're going to dig into some of that. Um, but I thought this would be a good topic to follow on uh, the past two weeks of our episodes, which uh, listeners will have heard us talk about or be interviewed on the Do Theology podcast with Jeremy Howard. Um, and, you know, Jeremy mentioned to us when he invited us to come on Do Theology that uh, he wanted to put to us some some blunt questions. And, and he did. And one of the questions that he asked us uh, specifically was whether or not we had experienced a burning in our bosom, which is the way that Latter-day Saints uh, are taught that they receive their testimony. Uh, so we, we answered that question in those uh, episodes. Uh, so you can listen to those if you want to hear, hear us talk about that. But today we're going to dig into um, specifically the, the scriptural passages, the canonical passages that Latter-day Saints use uh, and that latter, you know, that are taught to Latter Day Saints uh, with regards to testimony. Um, so the first one I think that we want to dive into is is really the uh, the, the the main one, <laughs> which is uh, Moroni ten three through five, right? Moroni's challenge. Um, so Matthew, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience with this this passage? Um, what was it like? How was it taught to you? 
what did you understand it to be? Uh, all of that. Yeah, I figured I'd start off with uh, just reading it real quick. Um, sure. So just three, verses three through five, I guess. So this is the this is the passage that they'll quote, and it's basically the, the end of the Book of Mormon, the very last chapter. And LDS missionaries will read it to their investigators, and they'll give it as kind of like a promise that if they follow these steps, then they should receive a testimony of everything that's uh, happened in the book. So uh, it's Moroni speaking. Uh, he, he writes, Behold, I would exhort you that when you shall read these things, if it be wisdom in God, that you should read them, that you would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam, even down until the time that you shall receive these things and ponder it in your hearts. And when you shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the eternal father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if you shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, you will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost and by the power of the Holy Ghost. You may know the truth of all things. So the way I understood it uh, as a Latter-day Saint was that it is exactly like I tried to explain is that it's a promise that if you if you read and ponder about the things in the Book of Mormon and if you pray about it, then you'll receive a confirmation by the power of the Holy Ghost that it's true by some fashion. And so it could be one way or another, but the Holy Ghost would somehow reveal to you directly that the book is true and from God. And so this is the promise that they give to all prospective members of the church, which they call investigators. And so it doesn't really say that you need to read every single thing. It just says uh, when you shall receive these things. So I'm guessing it would imply that you have to read, at least read some of it. You know, it's, it's not just as much as holding the book in your hands and never opening the pages. I'm guessing you'd have to read some part of it and then prayer is involved. And then if you follow those steps, then God will, it's, it's not a, you know, it's not a maybe or a could, but it's a, it's a definite will. Um, revealed to you by the power of the Holy Ghost that it's true. So that's a, that's a huge part of missionary work because we're trying to, a, a core, the, one of the core beliefs of the LDS church is that the Book of Mormon is true. And so if you believe the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith was a prophet. And if you believe Joseph Smith was a prophet, then you believe that God restored the church through Joseph Smith. And if that's true, then it's the one true church on the earth. So that's why it's so important for LDS missionaries to really focus on Moroni's promise. All right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Definitely remember as a missionary uh, focusing on it myself. Uh, it's something that you read uh, multiple times with uh, every investigator you interact with um, because you want to get the message across that uh, they should pray to know if the Book of Mormon is true. Um, and, you know, the like you were saying, that the, the promise is that it's it's not a maybe. If, if, you, if you pray about it, you're going to receive a witness. Um, so what I thought was interesting is to look at the passage in context. Um, and I, you know, I've I'm a bit embarrassed that I've never noticed this before. Uh, but when I was reading over this passage in preparation for uh, this episode and, and looking at, you know, you know, part, part of the thing, and we've talked about it a little bit before, but part of the thing about growing up LDS and, and experiencing uh, scripture as a, as a Latter-day Saint is that you're not really taught to look at context. Um, maybe, maybe Latter-day Saints now are a little bit more than, than maybe we were in the past, Matthew, but I, growing up, like, and especially like as a missionary with Moroni 10, three through five, you, you're really taught to just look at the passage that you're given, right? Um, especially as you're, as you're teaching it to investigators. But if you look at Moroni chapter 10 and begin at the beginning, uh, a, a novel concept, I, I, I know, but if you look, if you look at verses one and two, they say, now I, Moroni, write something, write somewhat as seemeth me good, and I write unto my brethren, the Lamanites. 
And I would that they should know that more than 420 years have passed away since the sign was given of the coming of Christ. And I seal up these records after I have spoken a few words by way of exhortation unto you. And then it goes into verses three through five, which you read. So in context, this challenge, this this promise is really to the Lamanites. It's to, uh, according to the Book of Mormon narrative, uh, the descendants of uh, Laman and Lemuel, who were brothers of Nephi at the beginning of the Book of Mormon. And so, you know, the kind of the question is, if you look at this passage in context, is this promise really for everyone? What do you think, Matthew? Uh, well, it seems like from this direct context, it seems like he's speaking directly to the Lamanites. And I'm guessing it's Lamanites who are kind of in our time-ish who received the record. Because I don't think he was thinking of the Lamanites during his time because, well, they're all trying to kill him. So <laughs> I'm guessing it's those who would receive the book much later. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it just caught me as interesting that it's written, you know, according to Moroni to the Lamanites, to his brethren, the Lamanites. And so thinking about how the, how the LDS church uses it as a promise to everyone, um, just kind of interesting. Um, so when you, when you shared this passage with, uh, investigators as a missionary, Matthew, um, what was that like? Did, how did they receive it? Um, did you have, I, you were in Belgium, right? So did you have, uh, investigators that received it and, and prayed and, and received a witness, or was it a mixed bag? What was what was your experience? Yeah, I don't recall many instances where they actually followed this and had, you know, like the experience we were hoping for. I do remember having times where I felt like the Holy Ghost was witnessing to them in other ways, you know, whether through a testimony that was shared or through, you know, sharing a movie with them, you know, about Jesus or sharing the first uh, vision. And those, that, those were experiences I felt like that's when the spirit really touched people. I didn't really have many experiences. Well, I mean, I had enough hard enough time just getting people to talk to me, first of all. But uh, yeah, I don't really recall any specific circumstances where we gave them a nice promise. And then, you know, they felt like they prayed and then they got the answer they're looking for. We did uh, talk to some, some people who um, like prayer was very foreign to them. I think there's someone who is from China. And, you know, like it, the idea of having a God in heaven that you could talk to is just very foreign to him. So we would try to teach him and he just couldn't, he couldn't understand prayer. He couldn't see the point of it. So there was kind of a disconnect there, but he at least tried, you know, he at least tried to do it, but he said he didn't get anything out of it. So yeah, it's kind of the extent of, from my memory anyway. How about you? Yeah. It, it was something that challenged me on my mission because, um, so I can think of two investigators in particular, uh, both from my first area. Uh, the first one uh, was named George, uh, and he was he was a, a Hungarian man, uh, middle aged, and um, you know took care of his mom who didn't live with them, uh, but he lived on his own, uh, had never been married, and and he was quite lonely. And his you know he had been through several sets of missionaries uh, prior to my coming on the scene, and uh, you know he liked to meet with us. And he met with us pretty pretty much weekly uh, in, at his apartment, and we would, you know, read read with him from you know various passages of the Book of Mormon. He had read all the way through the Book of Mormon multiple times uh, at the time I was uh, there meeting with him, and um, you know, I, we read Moroni ten three through five countless times with him and challenged him to pray, and um, he he would and he would he would he was always very honest with us. He said he would tell us that he didn't receive what 
you know, any kind of witness when he would pray about it, but he liked to meet with us and he felt good when he met with us is what he would say, but um, he didn't receive what he thought was a testimony in response to praying about the book of Mormon. Um, he enjoyed reading from it, but, but he was very kind of upfront and honest with us. And, and to the point where he would, he would tell us, you know, I, I don't want you to be disappointed, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not getting what you're, what you're expecting me to get. Now he did uh, later on get baptized um, after I had left the area. Uh, but there was another uh, young, young man that we met with named Laszlo uh, his, you know, Hungarian shortened that to Lazi kind of a nickname. And um, we met with Lazi, you know, for several months in my first area, he was studying uh, to be an engineer uh, at one of the universities there in Budapest. And, um, he was the same way, you know, we would read Moroni 10, three through five, uh, with him multiple times and challenge him to pray. And, and he, he too was very honest with us, you know, never felt like he was getting a witness to his prayers. Um, uh, even to the point where he was at one point ready to, you know, uh, cut off meeting with us because he didn't think we were getting anywhere. Um, but you know, we continued to meet with him and he also, uh, eventually ended up getting baptized. Um, but not because, you know, neither one ended up getting baptized because they felt like they had received a testimony in some miraculous way by praying about the Book of Mormon. Uh, so uh, let's go on to the next passage, uh, Doctrine and Covenants 9, 8 through 9. So let's read that one, uh, and I'll, I'll take this one, Matthew. Okay, so Doctrine and Covenants 9, 8 through 9 uh, says, But behold, I say unto you, that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore you shall feel that it is right. But if it not be right, you shall have no such feelings, but you shall receive a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which was wrong. Therefore you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me. So Matthew, what was your experience with this passage uh, as a Latter-day Saint? How, how was it used and taught in the LDS church? Well, they, you know, if they were, if it was a teacher, like a seminary or institute teacher that knew the history, they would go in detail and show and describe how it was part of how Oliver Cowdery was trying to translate for the Book of Mormon. He was trying to receive revelation like Joseph Smith did. So he would try to just sit before it and hope, you know, pray that just God would give him the words. And so when nothing came, uh, Joseph Smith kind of chastised him a little bit and said, you know, he thought God was just going to give you this. And then he had this revelation that he wrote down. He said, that's how I was, it was explained to me. And so part of that was explaining that you have to study it out in your mind. And um, so you have to read and consider and think about, you know, ponder and pray about whatever it is that you're trying to know or understand. And uh, if you ask for truth, then God will make your bosom burn within you. So I feel like I had that experience personally, when I read the book of Mormon, I felt like I had that burning in the bosom, but I knew a lot of LDS personally who didn't have such an experience, who, who had maybe like a moment of clarity or some kind of sensation or just some kind of, they just had this feeling that it was right. You know, I just felt like the Book of Mormon was true. Uh, some people don't really have that experience at all, uh, but they still believe it. So that's, that's kind of how I understood it or how I was taught about it. And it, it's an application specifically, of, like I said, the Book of Mormon translation that's going on in uh, 1829, I believe it was. Yeah, 1829. Uh, but, you know, LDS often use that to know they're applied also to just not general knowledge or knowledge about whether the Book of Mormon is true or whether the church is true or Joseph Smith is a prophet. So they apply it to a wide range of, of uh, things where you can if you're seeking to know truth, 
Yeah, good. Um, so Oliver Cowdery was uh, Joseph Smith's scribe, right? And, um, he desired also to be able to translate portions of the Book of Mormon as they were working together. And so this was, as you said, a revelation to Joseph Smith, uh, kind of chastising Oliver Cowdery for his lack of faithfulness, his lack of understanding that he needed to do more than just expect that an answer would come. He had to study it out in his mind. And yeah, it was a bit strange too, though, because uh, what was he supposed to study? You know, <laughs> that's yeah. one thing I never quite understood. That's not like he had, you know, he couldn't really read the characters because most of the time the plates were in front of him. And even if he did, he didn't know the language. So yeah, that's something I never really quite understood. Even as I already saying, I was like, well, how was he supposed to study it out? to translate yeah, it, you know? Exactly. I was going to make that exact point. And, and when you think about, you know, the, the statements from Martin Harris uh, in terms of how the translation was done, you know, with Joseph Smith having the seer stone placed in a hat and uh, placing his face into the hat to, to exclude the light. And then, you know, that he would see the words on the stone um, and dictate them, you know, exactly how does studying it out in your mind come into, come into play if the words are being given to you in that manner. So it's, um, it's kind of a kind of a difficult passage to deal with as as a former Mormon, but definitely when I was a Latter Day Saint, it was used uh, in the way that that you have explained, Matthew, and 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 that's why you know as as a Latter Day Saint growing up, I expected uh, that if I prayed about the Book of Mormon, uh, which I did, that the way that an answer would come to me would be uh, as a burning in the bosom, right? So okay. I think the way that the way that my um... I'll just add this one point. The way that my mission president explained it is that all these kind of first 10 or 20 chapters, they're kind of foundational chapters to the LDS church. And so the way that he kind of explained it was like, you know, these weren't really meant for that specific moment. Ultimately, they were meant for teaching the saints, you know, the Latter-day Saints, how to receive revelation. So maybe it doesn't make sense in, in that specific instance of translating the Book of Mormon. But, you know, he explained it as saying like, well, this is how... You know, this was a question or a problem that came up uh, to solve the problem of how do we know what's from God kind of a thing for us, for everybody. So that specific application might not make much sense, but the broad application is what is what is the original purpose for why that was. Does that make sense? Because that's how he explained it to me. So yeah. maybe that kind of helped to answer those questions. Where I was like, OK, I guess that makes sense. I guess I don't have to really worry too much about it. Yeah, I guess it does make sense. Um, I, I'd see it sort of as a post hoc type explanation, though. Um because it was given in a specific instance. And, and, you know, if you're going to look at the context, it, it, it kind of applies specifically to Oliver Cowdery's uh, circumstances and what he was going through. So. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so we've covered kind of Moroni's promise and then, you know, the passage that's used to, to teach Latter-day Saints, how they can expect to receive the answer to Moroni's promise. Let's now look at Alma 3221. Uh, in the Book of Mormon. Matthew, can you read that? And then we'll talk a little bit about it. Yep. I should have had it open. Alma 32, verse 21. And now, as I said, concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if you have faith, you hope for things which are not seen, which are true. Yeah. So this passage is kind of like um, used as a parallel passage to Hebrews 1. It sounds sort of familiar, sort of similar and familiar uh, to readers. And um it's it's a it's a little bit different though in in what it says, um, but you know the whole of Alma chapter thirty two it, it's it's one that you 
as a as an LDS missionary will read with investigators because it's all about the concept of faith and and Alma kind of starts out comparing faith to a seed and um, you know how you as the individual uh, in order to grow your faith kind of have to allow it to be nurtured and that that then it will grow and 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 eventually um, grow in, in 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 you'll grow in knowledge and 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 more and more faith as as time goes on and as you as you kind of give space for that seed to grow within kind of the exhortation within that chapter is, is to give space, right. It's, it's, it's almost a, a commentary maybe on the, on the parable of the sower, right. That, that you as a, as an individual should receive that seed that's, that's cast out as, as good soil and allow it to grow within you um, and not, uh, not tear it out by unbelief. But this passage specifically, uh, Matthew, what, what do you think of it? Um, and now, as I said, concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if you have faith, you hope for things which are not seen, which are true. Uh, how how is this passage used in the LDS church? You know, what what was your experience with it growing up? The way I kind of saw it was like a general principle, uh, kind of kind of a similar thing where if it's just speaking broadly of, you know, if something's true, but you can't visibly see it. Um, faith is to believe that it's true or to have or to hope that it's true. But it's also kind of hope for the future or hope for promises that have been given to you that you can't you know, tangibly see or, or you know, experience. So, so that could be whether you're trying to know if the book of Mormon is true, that could be also having faith that, you know, you're going to get through this life and you're going to get to see heavenly father again. It could be believing whether something your leaders taught is really by revelation or not. So sometimes you might have doubts about that, or they would say something either past, past LDS leaders or current LDS leaders. You, know, you might not quite understand exactly what they're saying or teaching, but you just have to kind of have faith that God's leading them and that it's true, that kind of thing. So it has a broad application, uh, broad, you know, different ways that it could be applied. But the general principle is just that if you, even though you don't understand it, if it's true, you should believe it. But then that always caused me questions to know, okay, well then how do I know, you know, whether something is something that I see is true, um, but I, you know, but I can't see it, but I have to believe it because it's true, but I don't really have any way to test it to know whether it's true or not. Does that make sense? Like, a, like the, the, the way to test whether something is true basically comes back to like we were talking about, like Moroni's promise. Mm-hmm. Um, if something an, an LDS leader taught bothered me, it was up to me to pray about it and kind of receive confirmation from God that it was true rather than just believing it. So I don't, I don't think it's asking for LDS necessarily to have a blind faith, but it is asking for them to believe everything that's true, even if you can't, if you have no tangible or solid proof that it is mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, there, there's a little bit of a maybe a little bit of circular. Um, I don't know if it's circular reasoning or just just that you you end up feeling like you're going in a circle with this um, because this this passage uh, you know does does kind of uh, encourage Latter Day Saints to have faith even if you can't see uh, the object of your faith, right? And so that that sounds a little bit like blind faith. Um, but it also says that faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things, right. Which is something that, you know, I really struggled with as I was leaving the LDS church and, and not, not really even before I was leaving, but as I was really kind of wrestling through, um, you know, what does it mean to have a testimony, um, of the book of Mormon, you know, uh, and this brings us to really how, how the LDS, people and, and, and culture and church uh, uses uh, testimony 
uh, within its message, within its witness, within its uh, outreach to uh, people not of that faith, uh, and, and even people within the faith. So, you know, for for those of our listeners who may not know, um, once a month in the LDS Church, they hold what's called a fast and testimony meeting, and members of the LDS Church fast and they give fast offerings, which are to be equal to uh, the amount. Uh, saved from fasting for two meals. And uh, then during the church service, it's as, as Jeremy Howard kind of explained when we were on the do theology podcast, it's kind of like open mic night, right? Uh, Anyone in the congregation can stand up and bear their testimony. And the language that is used by people when they stand and bear their testimony is the language of, I know, I know the book of Mormon is true. I know Jesus is the Christ. I know the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true church on the face of the earth. These are the affirmations that are shared uh, often uh, during those fast and testimony meetings. And when you when you start using language like I know, uh, the the implication is that the person has received that spiritual witness promised in Moroni 10, 3 through 5, uh, with regard to the Book of Mormon with, and with regard to other things that they um are, are saying that they know. But then if you think about, um, you know, Alma 32, 21, where it says faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Um, it's almost a contradiction that Latter-day Saints will stand and, and, and claim to know something that, um, you know, is, is unseen, like to claim to know that the book of Mormon is true. What does that mean? Does it mean that it's historically accurate, that it's a, that it's an actual, uh, historical record of, of people who came to the Americas from Jerusalem and uh, created here a large group of people, uh, two large people groups that warred with one another? Or does it mean that you know that it's the word of God, um, that it's uh, scripture in the same sense that the Bible is? So there are various ways that that you could conceive of you know, what it means to say, I know the Book of Mormon is true. Um but, but again, when you're getting into that, in, into using that language of I know, and, and this is what I struggled with uh, in particular towards the end of my mission, is, you know, you're, you're taught as a missionary to bear testimony to investigation to those who you're teaching. And so, you know, I was out there in Hungarian saying, I ain't to dome, you know, I know, and then following that up with, you know, the Book of Mormon is true and the church, the church of Jesus Christ is the only true church on the face of the earth and, you know, those types of claims. And I really didn't know that. You know, I didn't have the experiential uh, knowledge of that. I didn't have the uh, the evidential knowledge of that. Um, but I was out there using the words I know, um, and I didn't have the spiritual witness of that. And so I got to the point on, on my mission where I would stop. I stopped using that language altogether and just started saying, I believe, because I felt like that was more true to Alma 3221, where, I, you know, I wasn't claiming to have a perfect knowledge uh, I was rather claiming to believe what I what I'd been taught and what I'd received as a as a young Latter Day Saint. So thoughts on that, Matthew, on what I've said there? Yeah, a lot of what you said resonated with me. Um, I, I mean, I think traditionally when they said that they believe the Book of Mormon is true, they meant that all of it was true, that it was historically accurate, that it was inspired of God, that it came through Joseph Smith, that it is what that it is what it claims to be. But now that I think a lot of I don't know what they would call themselves, maybe progressive or liberal Mormons as they read it and they, they find maybe some historical inaccuracies or some anachronisms, you know, they, they kind of limit that definition to kind of like what you said, maybe it's theologically correct or 
it's you know it's it teaches spiritual truth that kind of so it it's kind of already being redefined by some some or many latter day saints as to what they mean by when they say they know something and yeah like you said we we go out and we say that we know it but we don't but it, it's so focused on the spiritual witness that it doesn't really matter it didn't really matter to me if I had any kind of physical evidence to prove it because I feel like God told me it was true and so that's that maybe that doesn't come through clear enough to our investigators when we say we know, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, they would ask me, they say, well, how do you know? You know, like it just doesn't compute with them. They're like, well, how do you know? I mean, like studied, have you gone to South America or wherever it supposedly takes place and seen it? So yeah, that's a big question that always came up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that question is, is what I started to struggle with. Um, Cause I didn't have that kind of, that kind of knowledge. And it seemed critical to me that, you know, based on the claims that the Book of Mormon itself makes for, for its narrative, that, that it has to be true in that sense, uh, or it's, or it's not right. So, um, so let me ask you this, you know, we've, we've kind of gone through um, the main uh, passages from LDS canon that are used to kind of, kind of give foundation to this idea of having a testimony. Um with regards to Moroni's promise, right? That's that's specific to the Book of Mormon. Uh, were you ever challenged to pray to know the truthfulness of the Bible in the same way that Latter-day Saints are challenged to pray to know the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon? And, I, and Matthew, I'm specifically meaning when you were a Latter-day Saint, were you ever challenged to do that? That's a good question. Yeah, I, I had thought about it, and I don't really remember any specific instances um, if you would ask a Latter-day Saint, they'd probably say, oh, yeah, it applies just as much to the Bible as it does to the Book of Mormon. But they don't really focus so much on praying to know whether the Bible is true. Because I guess if you pray to know the Book of Mormon is true, then they automatically assume, well, that means also the Bible is true. Well, to an extent or another. Um, that's another discussion. But yeah, no, it wasn't really something that I experienced very much or that I can recall. How about you? No, I, I don't recall ever being challenged to pray about the Bible in the same way. Uh, that that you're constantly challenged to pray about the Book of Mormon. Um, I think that's interesting, um, and occasionally I'll see uh, you know someone ask Latter Day Saints in, in like a Facebook group if they've ever prayed to know the Bible is true, and and Latter Day Saints sometimes will say yes, sometimes will say no. Uh, sometimes I'll give an answer similar to yours, where you know I prayed to know the Book of Mormon is true and got a witness, and so therefore the Bible is true because uh, Moroni ten three through five specifically says that that you should think. Uh, you know, about how merciful God has been from the fall of Adam until, until the time that you receive these things. So the Bible is kind of included in that thinking about portion of that, right? So it kind of gets lumped in there. But um, yeah, I just think it's interesting that, that the focus is on praying about the Book of Mormon, and, and there's not really uh, the same kind of challenge for the Bible. So um, all right, so now let's get into the Bible passages, the New Testament passages that's, that, that Latter-day Saints will use uh, in conjunction with uh, the passages from the broader uh, LDS canon uh, to talk about testimony. So the first one is Hebrews 11.1. 1. <clears throat> and like I said before, this is kind of a parallel to Alma 32.21 um, in that it's it's sort of like a, a summary of what faith is. Um, so Hebrews 11.1, 1, sorry, I'm getting there, says, uh, and I'm re- reading it in the KJV, now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Um, so how how do Latter-day Saints uh, use this passage, Matthew? Do you, do you recall? Uh, we didn't really use it very much, to be honest. It seemed more like it was just kind of like 
you would read the passage in Alma and then you read it in Hebrews and say, see, it confirms, you know, basically teaching the same thing. Um, you know, like if something's true, but you can't see it, then it requires faith to believe it. That kind of a thing. At least that's what I remember anyway. Okay. So let me ask you then, does, do you think it teaches the same thing? Yeah, I've thought, I thought about that. Uh, I mean, maybe there's some overlap there. Um, it's, it's, uh, it goes on, you know, throughout the chapter to talk about the many things that the giants of the faith that came before us, what they accomplished through faith. And it um, starts off by talking about how through faith, the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which were seen were not made of things which do appear. So in some circumstances, like in that one, God literally created something that had not existed, had not existed before. And so it's not really so much an application of knowing whether something is true or not, um, because it was, it's speaking of God actually making something from nothing. Um, and it goes on to talk about uh, how by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Um, uh, by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation. He had this testimony that he pleased God, but without faith, it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So yeah, this is a passage. This is a chapter that I thought about a lot, but I think it's, Ultimately, our faith has to be grounded in God because all of these people, you know, they, they did something by faith, but ultimately our faith has to be placed in God. And so I don't think it's really giving a promise as much, you know, like a promise of like, oh, well, if, you know, if you believe in something, then you'll know the truth of it or, or you'll be given the truth of it. It's just kind of like saying that, you know, by faith, these people were able to act and they accomplished God's will. Kind of. So I'm not sure if that answers your question really, but um, so uh, there might be some overlap there with the, the LDS understanding of it. But I think it's more than what we were taught, as Larry says. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, as I was kind of digging into the passage, you know, what's interesting is uh, it says, you know, faith is the substance of things hoped for, right? Um, the, the Greek word uh, that's translated as substance here is, is hypostasis, right? It's the same uh, word that is used uh, in the, um, the Nicene Creed uh, to represent the three persons of the Trinity, right? Uh, there's three hypostases, uh, three persons of the Trinity. Now, the the way that um, you know, I was looking this up in the in the uh, an analytical lexicon that I have for the Greek New Testament. Um, you know, and the way it describes it there is that uh, in in Hebrews eleven one in, in particular, it it gives substance to, it gives reality to uh, what is hoped for, right? And and so you know, to to kind of summarize that. Uh, in in a way that that you know Christian apologist Frank Turek would. I was listening to his uh, episode uh, earlier today on you know what is faith and and um, you know the way he describes it is in, in particular with Hebrews eleven one because he said you know that that atheists will often use this this passage to try to say see you you believe in blind faith as Christians um, you know you just you're just hoping for things that are not seen um, and you know he's like. If in context, the passage really is talking about uh, a trust in God based on what is already previously known about God, which is why the rest of the chapter, as you noted, goes on to talk about the giants of the faith, right? It's laying out, these are the things that that God has already done, uh, and therefore having faith in God is, is trusting in a future reality based on what we already know of God uh, as someone who is faithful to keep his, his promises. So, um, it's a little bit different than than what seems to be uh, being taught in in Alma 
3221, which, which does seem to be a little bit more like um, you're just trusting in, in things, or you're just uh, hoping for, you know, it's the, what, how does Alma 20, 3221 say it again? I don't want to mis, misquote it. Um, and now, as I said, concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if you have faith, you hope for things which are not seen, which are true. Um, you know, I guess it's, it's, there's a similarity there. Um, but what I would say is that uh, it's, I, th- I think the type of trust that's being discussed, the, the type of faith that's being discussed in Hebrews 11 is, is a bit different than just hoping uh, for things which are not seen. It's, it's understanding that there, there's evidence as well. And, and so, uh, and also Alma 32, as, as we talked about it, it's all about growing your faith, right? The, the more faith you have, the better off you'll be according to Alma 32. Um, and you have, you have to give place for that seed to grow. Um, but, you know, faith in the biblical sense is, isn't ever used in terms of, um, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, you're better off if you have more faith, right? The, it's the object of your faith that, that saves you, right? Uh, faith in Jesus Christ saves you as the object of your faith. Um, having, you know, one person having the faith of a, a mustard seed and another person having the faith the size of a mountain, the, the person with the faith the size of a mountain isn't, you know, isn't saved more than the person with the faith the size of a mustard seed, right? Um, because it's the object of your faith that that saves you. So thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't really have much to add to that. That's great. Um, yeah. It's the, I was just, uh, I was looking up because I use Bible Hub and they have like uh, word, word studies. So I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I was just going to add to that they, so they tear the word down, you know, uh, ippo, which means under, um, and istemi to stand. So it could mean to like, a, so ipostasis uh, in this context could be standing under a guaranteed agreement. So kind of like a title deed. So it's kind of like a legal, legal type language where it's a promise that God is literally going to fulfill, you know, kind of like a contractual agreement where there's a legal legitimate claim to, to something and that God will accomplish it. So it, it gives kind of like a more concrete promise rather than just saying, well, you know, trust and then, you know, everything will work out kind of a thing. It's more like God is giving concrete promises and, you know, he fulfills those promises, which is more along the lines of what I think what we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, the analytical lexicon that I'm looking at also uses that, that title deed language that you were just referencing. And, um, you know, one, one other thing to note is, you know, uh, hypostasis is a, is a word that is used, uh, three times in Hebrews. Um, so it's a word that, that the author of, uh, the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, whether you take that to be Paul or, or someone else, um, used, you know, a number of times. And, and one of the other times that, that the author uses it is, uh, in Hebrews one, three, um, which is talking about, uh, Jesus and, uh, you know, I think it's it's good to read the whole beginning of that chapter. Uh, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in times past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he, he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And the word translated person there is hypostasis. Um, so again, here, uh, what the, the, the idea that's being conveyed is that there's... Um, reality being given to this, to God who is invisible to us in the person of Jesus Christ, right? The person of Jesus Christ in the world uh, is the reality of God um, to us. And so uh, it's, it's, 
it's an interesting way that that word is used both there in, in chapter one of Hebrews and in chapter 11. Um, it, it, it's meant to convey something more than just a, a blind faith. It's meant to convey a faith that's in, in yes, a faith in things that are not seen, um, but a faith in things that are not seen that is given reality in the world and the way that God has worked in the world, both in the past and in, in that present time uh, in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Amen. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. All right. Uh, James 1.5. Matthew, uh, I'll read that one. Uh, Let me just pull it up real quick. All right. James 1.5 says, uh, if any of you lack wisdom, let him, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. So this passage of scripture is used a lot by Latter-day Saints, mainly because Joseph Smith in his later recountings of his first vision said that reading this passage in the Bible is what sent him to the grove in, in New York to pray uh, and to know which of the churches uh, he should join. Uh, all of that is not in his earlier retellings of the of the event. His earlier retellings of the event are focused on his own individual salvation and his praying uh, for uh, you know to be saved. But um, later on, he he casts the idea of that experience in 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 terms of needing to know which of all the churches he should join. And um, so, yeah, he he supposedly read this passage of scripture and it it sent him to the to the woods to pray. Uh, so how was this scripture used, uh, in the Latter-day Saint, uh, teaching, uh, with regards to testimony, Matthew? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's directly tied in with, like you said, with Joseph Smith's personal experience because he felt like, well, at least in his 1838 history, he described it that way that he was just so confused and everybody was fighting and nobody, nobody could get along. So he's like, well, you know, uh, I'll just keep doing my thing. It seemed like kind of like he was expressing that he was just kind of going to search for truth himself. And then it was that passage that entered into his heart more forcefully or more powerfully, if you have the wording is, than it ever did in the heart of man. And so, you know, he just explains that that's how he experienced it, that it was something that just completely consumed him, which inspired him to go to you know, the grove of trees and pray. And that's where he supposedly had the first vision with God and Jesus. So they they usually tied him with that experience and they say, well, just like, just like Joseph Smith prayed to know that, you know, which church to join, you can also pray to know the truth of the Book of Mormon or of the church. So kind of similar to Moroni's promise. Uh, so I guess, you know, Moroni's promise is kind of an extension of that. All right. Good. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, you know, definitely I recall, uh, you know, speaking with people in train stations and at bus stations 
uh, anywhere where lots of people were traveling when I was a missionary uh, in Budapest and uh, town squares and, and, and reading with them from uh, the Joseph Smith testimony pamphlet, uh, you know, his experience of, of reading this passage and feeling the need to go and pray. Um, so what's the context, though, of this passage? Who, who is James writing to? Uh, do you want to touch on that a bit, Matthew, or do you want me to? Uh, yeah, uh, I was looking at the French version <laughs> just because like, I, I was thinking about it and we're talking about this passage reminded me of when I arrived in my mission at the mission home, I was like one of the last people to be interviewed by the president. Like, you know, we had a really long flight to overseas, like I'm sure, you know, so like, he was like, okay, we'll interview you. And then when we're done, you can go upstairs and sleep. They had beds for everybody. And I was one of the last people and I was like, well, okay, well, like, I don't have much to do. So I was just sitting there with my French Bible. And that was the first, like probably one of the first, you know, Bible verses in French that I memorized just sitting there so anyways uh side note but um yeah he says uh at least in the french version i guess i should probably go to english huh he says he's writing to the 12 tribes who've been dispersed is that what it says in mm-hmm. the english version yep 12 tribes which are scattered abroad mm-hmm. so i'm guessing that would just be speaking to fellow jews primarily i mean obviously probably fellow believers who came to believe in christ also yeah yeah uh, so yeah so you've got the the um Babylonian captivity, right, in the history of Israel, and uh, where where Judah and the Southern Kingdom was carried away, and before that, uh, the Northern Kingdom was carried away into Assyria. So you got those 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 scatterings, and and even with the return from Babylon, um, uh, not all uh, of the people who were carried captive into Babylon returned, right? Some of them, uh, in in some ways, benefited from being in Babylon. You know, they were working in the King's court and that kind of thing. And, you know, some didn't return. So, um, and some, you know, probably had, uh, you know, intermarried. And and so there, there was familial reasons to stay. And so not, not everyone returned to, uh, to Jerusalem when, when the, when they were allowed to. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so he's writing to, you know, the 12 tribes scattered abroad all over. They were, they were all over the Middle East at that point. So, um, right. And it's, and he's not, he's not telling you, Hey, you know, here's the Bible, you know, pray to know that it's true kind of thing. <laughs> it's right. for a much different purpose. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, what is, what's the context of his writing? You know, he goes on in verse two, um, to say, my brethren count it all joy when you fall into the two diverse temptations, knowing that, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. So you know, he's kind of, he's kind of, kind of calling out that, um, you know, a big part of the new Testament message, uh, a big part of the hope of Israel uh, looking uh, forward to uh, the Messiah was, was that the Messiah would, um, you know, kind of end, uh, end their captivity. You know, there were some, there were some Jews that, that believed that uh, Israel was still in, spiritual captivity, even though they were no longer in Babylonian captivity, uh, at, you know, at and prior to, uh, the incarnation of Jesus. So, um, you know, he's kind of, kind of calling that out, right. That like the, the history of Israel has been one of, uh, challenges and, and trials of, of faith. And, um, he's, he's reminding his, his readers of that as they, as he kind of greets them. And then he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Um, so 
as I've studied this passage and, and kind of the context and, and the lexical meaning of it, um, the word wisdom kind of stands out there. The way that Joseph Smith uh, took that passage was uh, he lacked wisdom as to which of the churches he should join. So that's what he was going to pray about. And so the question is what, you know, what's the biblical understanding of what wisdom means, right? Wisdom in the biblical sense is like application, right? Um, there's the word of God. And then wisdom is the application of the word of God. It's the, so what, right? Um, you got some of you, some preachers will say, you know, what's so, you know, how are things, what does it mean? You know, that kind of thing. And then the, so what is what it means to their hearers as they're preaching the word of God, you know, what, what do you do with this? That's what wisdom is in the biblical sense. Um, and so, you know, James is kind of calling out for his listeners, like us or his readers, like I said, Hey, um, our history has been a tough one, you know? Um, and if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives, gives to everyone, right? So what is James saying? What is, what is James telling his readers to ask for when he tells them to, to ask for wisdom? Um, and as I was looking at uh, the lexical uh, understanding of what wisdom is uh, in a biblical sense and in, in the, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, what that, what that word and concept has meant is it's a, it's an understanding of history uh, from a godly perspective, right? And so James is kind of saying, if, if you're lacking an understanding of what God is doing in history, then ask God. Um, if I'm going to, you know, take a minute and strong man, um, you know, the Latter-day Saint position and look at uh, the way, uh, look, look at the fact that, you know, um, Moroni 10, three through five uses the term, using, uses the word wisdom. Um, one could argue, I suppose, that because of the way that Moroni 10, three through five uh, tells its listeners to think about the way God has acted and think about his mercy from the time of Adam uh, down until they're reading the Book of Mormon. Um, one could argue that, oh, you know, the Book of Mormon is using wisdom in, in the biblical sense. But um, to kind of shoot that down a little bit, uh, even though I'm trying to strongman. Uh, the way that Moroni 10, three through five uses the word wisdom is, is if it be wisdom in God, which is kind of like saying, if it, if it be God's will that you read these things, not necessarily that uh, wisdom is being used in the, in the correct biblical sense there. Um, but anyway, James one through five or James one, five, uh, not uh, an exhortation to just pray about any old thing you want to know is true. Um, it's, it's, it's an exhortation from James to his listeners to uh, pray for wisdom, to see what God is doing in, in, uh, in history, basically. Right. And I also think he's, he's, he's writing to Jews who he assumes they have probably some portion of the law where they have some access to what God has already revealed. And so he's not saying, okay, close your, close your scrolls, you know, close what God has already said and just pray to know what to do. You know, he's probably, he's probably exhorting them like, Hey, you know, for wisdom, consider our past, consider, you know, Moses and the trials he went through, Abraham, his test of faith, consider everything that's gone before us and pray for God to help you to understand how that's going to help you now in your trials today. And so I think I, I see you get, I know there will probably be LDS that will contest this, but it feels like when they use, often when missionaries use this passage with investigators, that's kind of what they're saying is they're saying like, okay, you read something now close the book and like kind of like just ask god and he'll tell you it's true but like i said it's not it's not ask it's not telling you to ask if something's true it's saying okay you already know god's law you know god has spoken you know what you know people came before us what they've taught now ask god to help you to apply it 
to what you're de- dealing with right now. It's like, yeah, kind of just reiterating what you're saying. Yeah. All right. Final one. Uh, final. No, it's not the final one. Um, second to last. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Let's talk. Let's read it and talk about how Latter-day Saints use it. Okay. Galatians 5. I'll read it from their official website just so I know that I'm not you know, adding anything to it. 22 and 23. Uh, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance against such there's no law. So yeah, in terms of what we would share this with as Latter-day Saints or as specifically as missionaries, the way I would say it is that if you pray, if you follow these instructions, like, you know, I usually use this conjunction with James one or Moroni 10. If you read this and you, you follow the instructions, you pray, then these are the, you know, gifts or the signs of the spirit that it's speaking to you, that it's telling you truth. So if you have any one of these or any combination of these, then that means that God is talking to you. At least that's how kind of I explained it. So if you have peace, uh, temperance, although, you know, I'm not really sure how you would feel temperance, but if you feel gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, uh, love, joy, peace, if you, if you feel any of those things, that's the spirit working because the spirit's not going to make you feel angry. It's not going to make you feel jealous or any of these other things. So if you feel these things that must come from God, because that's the only place you come from. So how about you? Did you kind of use it in a similar way or did you use it differently? Yeah, exactly like that. Um, as, as a missionary in the missionary training center, that's exactly how uh, we were taught to use it. Um, and, you know, I, I spoke about uh, George and, and Lotsi earlier, um, and that's exactly how we used it with them, right? They, they would both tell us that uh, they enjoyed meeting with us. They felt good when they met with us. Um, and therefore, we would use this passage and say, see, that's you may not be getting uh, a direct answer when you're praying about the Book of Mormon, but those good feelings that you have uh, when we're meeting with you and teaching you, that means the Spirit is telling you that these things are true. Um, reality is that the good feelings they had just could have been, you know, that they uh, had some some guys who were coming by that that were friendly and gave them some uh, companionship once a week. You know, Lotsi, I know was. Uh, an engineering student. Uh, he was, <laughs> he had, he had friends of course, but uh, uh, you know, we were, we were very important to him uh, that the, the, the relationship that investigators build with uh, missionaries um, is sometimes really important to them in their, in their personal lives. It, it becomes a, a, a form of friendship and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it shouldn't be used as a reason for uh, them thinking that that the LDS Church is true or the Book of Mormon is true, and that and that's kind of what you what you do with investigators. It, 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 looking back, the way we used Galatians five twenty two and twenty three, uh, given that so many investigators tend to get attached um, in an interpersonal way with with the missionaries they interact with, um, it it seems a bit manipulative to me to to kind of use those good feelings of of friendship and and uh, companionship that you you develop with or the investigators develop with missionaries as a way to kind of uh, kind of backdoor you know back into this idea that they have they now have a testimony of the truthfulness of the church and it's in one sense it's it's yeah it's a little bit duplicitous I think to say that if you have these feelings that must be from God like you said it's it it's kind of like a false dichotomy where it's like well, if you don't have these feelings, then it's not. Then you don't have the spirit. If you do have these feelings, then it must be from the spirit. 
but it always, I've talked about in previous episodes, I would always throw a wrench into my brain or my faith when I would, and I didn't even talk to other LDS about this and now that I would struggle with it. It's like, well, okay, when I watch a movie that's really moving and powerful, I feel those same feelings that I had when I felt like I was praying about the Book of Mormon and it felt like it was true. But I know that it's a fictional film. It's not true. So is it the spirit trying to tell me something about it? Like, are there good things being shared in it that are true? Or is God actually revealing to me that what's happening here did happen? You know what I mean? Like, it was a little bit confusing. It's kind of like, you know, a radio where the signal keeps getting muffled, you know, when the stations kind of overlap. And so you're getting signals from multiple sources. So that's the one thing I really struggled with, too. I mean, it seemed quite obvious to me, at least, that like, well, if you're angry, because if you continue on, it says, uh, no, actually, verse 21. Um, 20 and 21, you know, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, uh, emulations. I'm not sure what that is. King James is kind of a little bit iffy for me, but (laughs) wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness. Those are all bad things. You know, obviously like those don't come from God. So it made sense to me like, oh, okay, bad feelings don't come from God. Good feelings come from God, but sometimes good feelings come when there's not really a clear message as to why those good feelings come. And that's what was, was rough for me. So I don't know if you had similar situations like that, but that's something I struggled with for a while. Yeah, definitely. And um, we'll kind of get into that uh, in another in another episode for sure. Um, what I thought was interesting about uh, this uh, passage is, you know, looking at it in context, um, the prior verses um, are all talking about uh, the works of the flesh, the things that are contrary to the law, right? Uh, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, um, Variants, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings, and such like. And it goes on through through all of those, right? Um, those are the things that are uh, against the law, right? And then uh, it gives the fruit of the spirit. Um, and the end of verse 23 says, against such, there is no law. Um, it's interesting, though, that like, uh, did you ever get into conversation with, with investigators about why the end of verse 23 says against such, there is no, no. law. It's kind yeah, of weird. No, I recall. <laughs> Look, thinking, kind of thinking back on it, sharing that these two particular verses with, with investigators, it's kind of weird to stop reading at the end of verse 23. <laughs> Cause you're like against such, there is no law. It kind of seems like it should leave a question in your mind. Like, what are, what are we talking about here? You know, why, why is there suddenly talk about law um, when you haven't read the previous verses? But um, in any case, it's just it just kind of calls up for me uh, the idea and the way that uh, Latter-day Saints use these passages and are taught to use these passages, um, especially as missionaries. Um, you're not really taught to go into the context uh, much of the passages. It's it's uh, it's really just use these passages in this particular way to make this particular point to your investigators. And don't go any further than that. Um, and the kind of the reason that that happens, I think, is um, it's also from another passage in the Book of Mormon that uh, Latter-day Saints kind of get this way of dealing with with Scripture. Um, it's First Nephi 19.23, and that passage says this, uh, and it's uh, Nephi writing... Um, It says, I did read many things unto them which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord, their Redeemer. I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah, for I did liken all scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning. And so 
this idea of likening the scriptures to ourselves, um, it's a it's a particular it's particular to Latter Day Saints. Uh, this idea of saying, okay, um, even though there's this context to scripture, uh, we're going to take it and liken it to ourselves, and it and it's going to be relevant to us. Now, of course, within Christian preaching, right, there is the so what, right? There is the the application, the wisdom, like we were talking about. Um, but First Nephi nineteen twenty three sort of gives Latter Day Saints license to um, kind of rip passages from their context and just apply them uh, to themselves uh, without without concern for the context. We talked about it a little bit with DNC nine. Uh, eight through nine, where that's specific to Oliver Cowdery, but Latter-day Saints use it in a way to suggest that everyone should expect a burning in the bosom uh, in order to know truth. Um, and the same with, you know, Moroni 10 through three through five, where that's supposedly written to the Lamanites, but they use it in a universal way to be a promise to anyone who reads the Book of Mormon. Um, and then also, you know, the way that they use biblical passages as well, Galatians 5, 22 to 23, use it in this particular way, liken it to yourself. It doesn't matter that there's context around it that, that really explains better what Paul is getting at uh, in that letter. Um, and, you know, especially with Galatians, it's interesting because that that letter is the uh, the law and, and, and what relation Christians have to the law now is so important to that letter and what Paul is saying within that letter that um, to kind of grab those two verses, uh, even the part that says against such, there is no law and not really explain what you're talking about or what Paul was talking about in that whole uh, chapter. And just use those verses to try to say, this is how, this is how you'll feel the spirit. Um, and if you're feeling these good things, it's the spirit um, without regard for, for Paul's overall argument is kind of um, that, that particular Latter-day Saint way of dealing with scriptures and liking it unto yourself. So anyway, just a point I wanted to make any thoughts on that before we go into our final passage, Matthew. And yeah, no, that's great. I mean, sometimes, sometimes Christians Bible studies kind of fall into that pitfall where you just read a passage and say, well, what does this mean to you? You know, so we should yep. try to avoid that as much as possible. Yep, for sure. All right. So the final passage is Luke 24, 32. Uh, I can't remember who read last Matthew. So I'm going to do the, um, LDS gospel doctrine thing and assign you to read. <laughs> okay. Uh, what was the verse again? Luke 24, 32. Right there. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Yeah. So do you, do you recall how this passage was used in, in LDS teaching, Matthew? Or do you recall using it in any particular I mean, I, way as a missionary? I mean, I probably just most remember it being used as confirmation of the DNC chapter nine, was it? Or it talks about how your burnt bosom would burn within you. You know, something is true. So yeah, just kind of a confirmation, you know, most of the time, especially as a missionary, you, you, we were taught to stay as much as we can in the book of Mormon. And then if, you know, go to the Bible to kind of confirm what the book of Mormon says, but then try to get back in the book of Mormon as much as possible. So that's kind of how we used it as like a confirmation text of what the book of Mormon and doctrine and covenants have been teaching. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's how I recall using it as well. And and it's how I recall seeing it used uh, by Latter-day Saints uh, in Facebook groups now. Um, if if a if an evangelical Christian challenges a Latter-day Saint on their testimony and says, you know, something like, um, you know, you can't trust your feelings, you know, that they may they may uh, cite the the Jeremiah passage, you know, that the, the heart is wicked above all things, uh, who can know it, right? Um, and they'll they'll say to a Latter Day Saint, uh, you know, how can you trust your feelings to be uh, indicative of what is true? Um, you know, specifically referencing the DNC 
eight through nine passage, you know, the, the, the whole burning in the bosom concept and, and Latter-day Saints will then cite Luke 24, 32 and say, see, uh, these, their hearts burned within them. So there's nothing wrong with, um, understanding that the spirit will make your heart burn within you to, to indicate truth. Um, but again, uh, the context matters. What, what is the context of, of this passage, Matthew? So basically this was after Christ had already been, had died and he'd been laid to rest. And, um, it's basically the announcement of, you know, Jesus's resurrection and being risen again. And so, um, it was Mary Magdalene and, and this chapter describes it. Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and other women that were with them. Uh, they, you know, they had told the apostles that Jesus had risen, that his, his uh, tomb was empty. And so then Peter and John, you know, they went to chase after to go see themselves. And so um, it was along the road where, let's see, um, looking at the specific verse where it describes it. Which verse did we just read? 32? Yeah, 32. So, yeah, so they were, uh, so Jesus appeared and he, it seemed like they didn't understand or know there was Jesus. Um, but he was describing his reading to them, the Old Testament, you know, in particular about Moses and how they spoke about him. And, and then at some point their eyes were open to understanding that, you know, who it was or who it was that was speaking. And, uh, but as soon as their eyes were open, that he was, he was gone, he vanished. I'm not sure if it's miraculous or if he just left. Um, it's kind of not, at least not clear to me from this passage. I'm guessing he probably vanished in some supernatural way. And so it's at this point where they're just kind of, well, when he was opening scriptures to us, you know, did not our heart burn within us. And so um, I think that it's, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say it precludes any possibility that it's a spirit, you know, testifying that what he was saying was true, but I think it was more testifying of who Christ was, you know, like when their eyes were opened, you know, they had this, they realized, you know, this is Christ, you know, this is him appearing to us and teaching us, you know, personally about how the scriptures are fulfilled in him. And so, you know, it's, it's just kind of a witness that it was actually him, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I agree with what you said. And, and, you know, it's, it's an interesting passage. It's, um, it's got some, it's got a chiastic structure to it. Um, uh, you know, they kind of start out, uh, or Jesus kind of appears to them and is walking with them along the road and they don't recognize him. It says that their eyes are holding in the KJV, um, at the beginning, uh, so that's the, the chiastic structure of, of that kind of ends where, you know, their eyes are opened towards the end. Right. So there's, there's some, and also there's some parallel, like in the beginning, they, uh, Jesus is kind of uh, asking them, you know, what's going on. And, and they're like, what, what are you like? Are you, you've been living under a rock kind of <laughs> like, have you not heard what's been going on in Jerusalem about this Jesus, you know? And um you know, then he starts opening the scriptures to them. And so, yeah, they, they kind of come to this realization where their eyes are opened at the end. And after he's, after he's uh, vanished from before them um, and after they've eaten with him, um, you know, that, well, you know, that was, that was the Lord, you know, that we just experienced that we just uh, dined with. Um, and so the burning in the bosom, um, one, one thing I'll note is that nowhere in the passage here is the Holy spirit mentioned. Um, so it's not uh it's not said in the passage that the Holy Spirit was witnessing to them the truth of what Jesus taught uh, or, or opened to, to them from the scriptures. So um, you, you're right. It's in, in Latter-day Saint context, it's used as a, as a kind of a, a backup passage, like see DNC nine, eight, uh, nine, eight, and nine is, is the way to go in terms of knowing truth by a burning in the bosom. But um, that's not really what uh, what's being uh, indicated. I think they're in Luke 24, 32. 
All right. So that brings us to the end of, uh, of talking about the, the passages. Uh, to kind of wrap up, uh, I think uh, for a Christian witnessing to a Latter-day Saint, um, I think you'll need to be well-versed in these passages if you want to get into conversations with them about what they mean uh, in context, uh, both for those passages that are from the LDS canon as well as those are, that are from uh, the Bible. Um, and for Latter-day Saints who who are listening um, or former Latter-day Saints who are listening, uh, hope you found uh, some some benefit from listening to us discuss these passages and talking about the context and, and really kind of digging into the way that they're used. Um, and then uh, in, in future episodes, we'll be talking about uh, other aspects of the LDS testimony. Thanks for listening. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to Outer Brightness wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're benefiting from our content, please write a review to help us spread the word. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. Music for Outer Brightness is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and Adams Road. You can learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. worthy of the blood that Jesus shed. But now I know that all the works I did were meaningless compared with Jesus' lonely death on the cross where he bore sin. And now I have the righteousness that is my faith in Jesus'
worth the cost All my righteousness I count as loss Because of the cross Some demand a sign And some seek to be wise But we preach Christ crucified A stumbling block for some The foolishness of God Wiser than the wisest man, the power of the cross. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord, through which the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world, so I take up my cross and follow where Jesus of the